0: Sifting through the many boxes the Hall family have collected on Alan's case, I came across a number of cassette tapes labelled Radio Pacific Documentary. Intriguing? Absolutely. Problem, I hadn't owned a tape deck in about 20 years. Can I record you asking this question?
1: Yeah, what are you going to ask me?
0: This is our News Hub assignment editor, Alison Harley. Do you know if there's a tape deck in the building?
2: I don't know. I suspect not. Roger, I Hello Asher. How's it going Mike?
0: And this is Asher, our radio editor guru. Do you know where I could find a tape deck? And it turns out, a tape deck owner.
2: I have one in my garage. Is it work? Yeah it works, I think. I might need it.
0: And what rolled off that tape? was kind of remarkable
2: 25
0: to 12 is the time it was a recording of a talkback show hosted by brian edwards from about 30 years
2: ago in the studio with me i have shirley hall who is alan hall's mother shirley
0: was there to speak about alan's case with members of the public who called in including a parent who perhaps knew better than most what shirley was going through
2: now i have alan thomas he's the father of arthur alan thomas and of course A person who campaigned for years and years and years to have his son's name cleared and in the end successfully. So good morning, Alan. Good morning. Is that Brian? Yes, it is. Brian, yes.
0: By the time the show was broadcast, Arthur Alan Thomas had been innocent for many years.
2: But Shirley's son was still in jail. I wanted to ask you, Shirley, and perhaps you and uh, Alan Thomas might like to just talk about this how devastating i mean it's touched on in the documentary but what has the effect on you been this lady who rang a moment ago talked about the victims but included in the victims are the families of the accused person aren't they yeah
3: well i assume so but we're certainly victims here hello alan hello shirley hall here yes Uh, how would i uh, describe it i think as white shock
2: white shock
3: yes what about you
2: well (laughs) we were numb (laughs) yes and uh, our friends rallied around us yes uh but i remember driving a long way home from uh, supreme court of Auckland to the and uh, that was a close family group of course we returned to our homes yes uh two families of us.
3: Mm.
2: i don't think there was a word spoken
3: no that was like us after Alan's trial mm. we just traveled in silence we prepared tea but couldn't eat it and so it went on
2: if you were to give some words of advice or to Shirley, what would you have to say to her that might help her to keep her strength up as she continues with this battle Uh, but the greatest thing was i think to keep our morale good uh, and keep our hopes up was the public could see through a lot of this evidence fishy evidence that was presented by the prosecution it's what i'd call fishy evidence
0: Going through police documents on the Hall file, I came across a memo dated June 1988. It was written by a detective who says simply, file not yet finalised, as defence are fighting an Arthur Allen Thomas type of rearguard action. The Thomases, of course, won their fight. But as for the Halls, well, their battle continues. I suppose the question is, what are they fighting against? A solid police and prosecution case... Or something else. What Alan Thomas called fishy evidence. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley Smith.
4: My name is Alan Hall, and I was
0: wrong with the three convicted of the murder of Arthur East. It's February 2018. I'm at my desk, surrounded by Alan Hall documents, writing a letter to Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn, as he was then, at least, when he headed the Eastern Murder Inquiry. My name is Mike Wesley-Smith. The last two years I've been researching... The last recorded comments I'd found from Calvin McMinn about the case was a radio interview from when Alan filed his application for a pardon in the late 1980s.
1: The appropriate forum for the matters to be... Uh... Uh, discussed or or considered is uh, in the courtroom and not in the media.
0: In order to better understand the police case against Alan Hall and to seek your comment on a number of questions about the investigation and alternative suspects, would you consider being interviewed? I wrote letters like this to almost all of the detectives who worked on Alan's case, at least those I could find addresses for. It's important I point out that I have not reached a conclusion about Alan's guilt or innocence. Our principal focus is on whether... He received a fair trial. I figured sending a letter might be a little less confrontational than just rocking up on their doorstep with a camera. In order to better understand a police case against Alan Hall, would you consider being interviewed? In case you're wondering, yes, that's genuinely how I've approached examining Alan's conviction. Police get accused of being tunnel-visioned all the time, and the last thing I wanted to have happen is for me to get the blinkers on. Okay, I will... ...prunt... You'd legal that letter before it went out, eh? This is Tom, our News Hub lawyer, and yes, my work on this case has kept him very busy. Yeah, I think that one's fine. Doing things by the book, yes, we have to. A lot of those who try to dissect an old murder conviction—be they journalists, family members, lawyers, or private investigators—will tell you the people you want to speak to first are the cops who worked on the case. <laughs> I have their documents. But I also want their memories, their reflections. As I was to discover, achieving this is much easier said than done. Often what you're met with is simple silence. It's what I've come to call, in this context, the blue silence. Okay, do you mind carrying that? Cool. As I waited for McMinn's response, and not knowing what to expect... I decided to ask Alan's first private investigator, Bruce Jack, about his time looking at the case. Bruce was a cop before he started working for defence lawyers. What was the reaction from the old police buddies to you?
1: Not too good. (laughs) Some appreciate what we were doing because we used to say that no matter what we find out, it's going to be tested in court anyway. Um, But a lot of them considered we were the, the enemy. And I've been thrown out of police stations and all sorts of
0: things. Bruce also knew Calvin McMinn.
1: Uh, all I can say is Calvin McMinn was qualified to do his job, and he he had done them in the past. Um, I'm surprised that he would have let evidence like this go through. Uh, I'm actually surprised that a lot of the police in the case didn't didn't uh, come forward or at least speak up about this dramatic change of. Description. Yeah.
0: Of course, Bruce is talking about Witness A's evidence, the statement that Bruce believes was changed deliberately. Is that a claim you make easily?
1: No, it's not. Um, I don't make that easy at all. A lot of policemen are accused of things, but having that experience, I know that it didn't happen, as they, yeah. as they say it does.
0: I will tell you now, the idea of putting claims like this to former detectives did, and still does, make me feel slightly nauseous. It's a question I've often thought about. How would a cop feel about some random journo appearing on his doorstep or in his email inbox or on the other end of the phone? I think if you get doorstepped by a journalist out of the blue, yeah. that raises the heckles. That's retired detective Dave Pizzini. We've heard from him before. He knows a lot of the cops who worked on the Eastern Inquiry. They went to work every day during their careers to do the best, best yeah. job they could. Yeah. And um, I have some sympathy yeah. when they when they get scrutinised for decisions they made many many years yeah. before. Dave says it's important to remember when re-examining old cases that investigative processes and technologies have advanced immeasurably since 1985. If it's been found that a mistake was made mm-hmm. many years ago on a particular case, we've seen it, Arthur Allen Thomas, etc. Yeah. For somebody's career to be judged on that one thing is unfair, yeah. and Kiwis are fair-minded people, yeah. and I think in in passing judgement on a police officer or whoever, people will have a look at the whole picture before they make their minds up. And it's important to point out that members of the Eastern Homicide Investigation are widely respected police officers who have given years of service to the community, helping to jail many dangerous offenders. Because of his closeness to the officers concerned, Dave can't give a view on the fairness of Alan's conviction. But I can tell you, once I said about contacting some of these detectives, I got the whole spectrum of responses. I've got nothing to say. Don't bother me. Don't ring me again. There were the bugger-offs. I've had a few of those. There were the, I don't care. Alan was charged, tried, and convicted. End of story. There was even the, year Nas. I rung one cop I'd spoken to once before, but then didn't hear from again. I rung him back to ask why, and he said, well, maybe that's because I don't want to speak to you. And I replied, Well, that's not very nice, But she said. Well, I'll talk to you when I want to. I'm still waiting for him to call me back, by the way. Then, of course, I've had police officers willing to speak to me, the ones you've heard from before. Some are happy to be named on the record, like Bruce Hesketh.
4: I wasn't the only one that had misgivings.
0: Another former cop, one who had only a peripheral role in the investigation, preferred to send me a written comment and remain nameless. In his opinion, as he wrote... The steps taken in this case to change witness statements was not common practice and was an example of gross incompetence. Another to remain anonymous was the man we've referred to as Police Officer 1. Again, someone not centrally involved in the investigation.
4: It's my opinion only, and to get it out is is a good thing to talk about, I suppose. It might upset some other people, however, um, you know, they can have their opinions too. But yeah, it does have an effect, especially if, 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 you know, this thing's been going on for a long time. And, but I always said it right from the outset that I, I didn't believe it. The day he was convicted, I didn't believe it.
0: And that brings me to the fourth former Papakura police officer I've found who is uneasy about Alan's conviction you know, for police officers, especially those who, you know, have, have since left the force, they're not they're not routinely in the habit of wanting to speak on this topic. What what's motivated you to express your views?
5: Oh, just obviously when you've approached me and asked me my thoughts, my thoughts are that it was never carried out properly.
0: Yeah.
5: And, and that's yes, yeah. hey, at the end of the day, as it was followed through to its entirety and came up with the same conclusion well and I would be happy, but I feel there was too many things that weren't followed up properly.
0: This is former Constable Gary Cunningham, who transferred to Papakura in 1988, after Alan Hall was convicted. Gary came to be involved in Alan's case after he was given information from a trusted informant from within the local gang community.
5: I had brought up a good relationship with both the Mungo uh, people and Blacktow people and other gang, other gang members. So, I had some pretty good informants that would tell me bits and pieces. As Gary told me,
0: information passed on by informants can often just be rubbish, nonsense. But he considered this tip off to be different.
5: And this particular person who um, I'd known for a while, um, who'd mentioned that we'd got it all wrong, and when I asked him, he I said about, he was telling me he was talking in relation to the Eastern Homicide.
0: Gary's informant said that while he'd been in prison, another man, who we choosing not to name, had admitted to him to being involved in the killing of Arthur Easton. This
5: chap had told me in the fact several years, you know, this was after the um, other chap had been arrested and charged and convicted for it, that um, I was told that we took the wrong guy.
0: Gary passed on this information to a superior officer. And what was his response?
5: Don't worry about it.
0: What was your reaction to that response?
5: I was frustrated because, you know, um, every little piece, should be looked into um, you know this from my point of view he wasn't interested in, in looking you know we've been looking for a um, initially a um, description of a person the person that I've now been told um, was more likely to be responsible from a, a reliable informant sort of matched that description and my thoughts are that it should be further investigated um, you know because otherwise you're going to have some poor guy that might end up doing to a lengthy sentence, and he didn't actually do it
0: At around the same time Gary was hearing from his informant, in the late 1980s, another person believed to be a cop wrote an anonymous letter to Alan's lawyer, Peter Williams.
1: That was, uh, it's actually like a breath of fresh air. I remember, uh, I, think, I think it was Peter Williams or or Alan's lawyer um, contacting Mum and saying, you know, hey, well, this has come in with a bundle of um,
0: paperwork. That's Jeff Hall, and, and what he's referring to is this document. It's a standard two-page police report form. On one side is Peter Williams' name and address. On the other side, it says, subject, Eastern Homicide. Then, rather cryptically, some police are honest. Then below that, in what appears to be a reference to the murder reconstruction carried out with the Eastern Boys in January 1986 with police, the author repeats the fact that Brendan and Kim could not identify the offender, but then says, Brendan, quote, originally said knife was an in intruder's right hand, but after reconstruction with CIB, thought it logical that the knife was in the intruder's left hand. Dot, dot, dot. After two to three hours brainwashing, now he believes it, end quote.
1: I really felt strongly it was, there was a lot of discontent inside the police. That was one of them saying, you know what? we'll look at this, Yeah, and I think that was a message I took that as a message from a police officer inside the New Zealand police, saying
4: it wasn't right.
0: And you don't know who wrote it? I don't know. And Bruce Heskeff had not heard of the letter until I mentioned it to him.
4: Look, police officers are generally pretty straight up. Yeah. That's been my experience of them.
0: I mean, at that time, I imagine the person who ever wrote it, they were taking some risk if they'd been discovered, because they are to be defence lawyer.
4: Absolutely.
0: So
4: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, an employment issue. I would have thought, yeah. Mm.
0: Police Officer One says he had not heard of the letter. I have no idea who wrote that,
4: um, but it would have been someone who who had direct or indirect involvement in the case. It could have come from any branch that was involved. That person has got quite a good knowledge of what took place.
0: Given the time and the culture within the police, how usual would it have been for someone to an anonymously write a note like that about a murder to the convicted person's defence lawyer?
4: First time I've ever heard of it, actually. That's why I sort of take that with some uh, sustenance, that document. Uh, that person, I would hope, because of the time frame now, would I would hope would come forward and, and let it be known why and, and why he did it, you know? Um, As I said, you had, from the statements that you've given me, he had a good knowledge of what took place.
0: And to this day, no one, apart from the author of the letter, him or herself, has any bloody idea who they are. It's just another puzzle piece in this case, like the many that I pick up and put down, hoping if I stare at it long enough or look at it a different way, the answer will emerge but I'm still waiting. I'm in the newsroom speaking with my producer Maggie. This morning, unexpectedly, I received a response from Calvin McMinn and this is so far the only response I've had from the dozen or so detectives I wrote to Um, and it's lengthy and it's quite interesting.
3: Okay. Dear Mr Wesley Smith... Your letter invites me to respond to a great many questions relating to this case. This case was one of many I was involved in during my 28 years with the New Zealand police. In the circumstances, I hope it would come as no surprise to you that I cannot realistically respond to your many detailed questions.
0: He's right. I sent him a really long list of questions.
3: Notwithstanding, and in the hope that I can be of some help, I do attempt to answer six of what appear to be the most significant questions you ask.
0: Calvin McMinn, in his letter, goes on to list the main evidence pointing to Alan's guilt. Evidence I've referred to before. Alan saying he'd had possession of the hat and bayonet. His conflicting stories on how these items could have ended up at the murder scene. And the fact he had an opportunity to commit the crime. That is, he had no solid alibi. Okay, so this is interesting. He says he's brought up the incinerator that the police found in Alan's backyard when they raided his home. And he says... Alan described burning a pair of shoes that he said belonged to his father that were too tight for him, gloves, clothing and a rag from a bloody nose Most people would regard this as an unusual way to dispose of items of this sort but might think it entirely consistent with someone who wished to destroy items to eliminate any risk of forensic examination Alan was actually questioned about this by police during the investigation What's the story about the burnt clothes in the incinerator? Yeah, they're mine, they were just clothes that were too small for me Were there gloves in that? I don't know, I
2: didn't burn any gloves.
0: Are you sure? It must have just been mixed up in there. He said he'd burnt the items the Sunday after his dad's funeral in September 1985, before the murder occurred. However, as we've heard before, Jeff Hall says it was something his family often did.
4: Mum had done a lot of
1: clearing
0: out of, um, of old clothes and things like that, so they were looking at items that had been burnt through the cinerator. So after I received this, um, I actually asked Calvin McMahon if he was the author of the anonymous police letter sent to Alan's lawyers all those years ago, and I kind of wanted to work up to that suggestion, so I said, you know, look, it's my gut instinct that you wrote this. OK. And the th- I have to say, the thing about um, Mr McMinn's correspondence is always polite and it's very formal. And he said, basically, in response to that suggestion, I have to say, basically, Mike, on this instance, your gut instinct is wrong. Then I got to the part of McMinn's letter in which he appeared, at least to answer one of the central enduring questions in the conviction of Alan Hall for murder. That is, who it was that ultimately decided to change Witness A's statement. OK, so this is pretty significant. Um, this is about Witness A, and Kelvin McMahon writes, I do recall the aspect of um, Witness A's sighting of the man running, running across the road being discussed with the Crown Prosecutor and the Crown Prosecutor deciding ultimately that Witness A's opinion that the man was Marty should not be included in the brief of evidence. So, what it appears we have here is the officer in charge of the Eastern murder investigation claiming that Crown Prosecutor Peter Kay was responsible for removing Witness A's description of the man he saw as Marty. When I told Bruce Heskiff, the cop who first interviewed Witness A, about what had happened to Witness A's statement, his reaction was immediate.
4: Oh, there has to be an appeal. There absolutely has to be an appeal. I mean, the, 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 this, is, this is evidence that wasn't known at the time mm. of the last appeal. There has to be an appeal. Mm. Um, look, I expect I'll have to give evidence, mm. and that's fine, mm. because at the end of the day, it is about fairness. Yeah. you know, I'm dealing with people every day. Yeah. All we want is that, as Kiwis do, we yeah. want a fair deal.
3: Okay, so Kelvin's letter goes on to confirm what the police file says, that Witness A's statement was changed because his Māori description was unreliable, considered to be unreliable. He writes, There was never any question that Witness A was other than a truthful witness who was doing his best to help the inquiry team. I recall, however, that a number of the team were influenced by his statement to Detective Sergeant White that the man's features seemed Māori and his stance seemed to be Māori. This, coupled with the man having his hood on, the fleeting nature of the contact, his inability to describe any facial features, the darkness of the right-of-way, and the suspect sighting experiment, led us, but more importantly the Crown Prosecutor, to believe that this part of his evidence was unreliable.
0: Now, as we heard last time from law professor Scott Optican, it's not the role of police or prosecutors to remove evidence that they think is unreliable.
2: In essence, you're setting yourself up as either the judge or the jury. Mm. And that's something that
4: police and prosecutors should absolutely not do.
0: Now I had heard from Calvin McMinn, it was time to contact former prosecutor Peter Kaye to get his side of the story. Peter Kay is a senior member of the legal profession with more than 30 years experience as a prosecutor and defence lawyer. I eventually received an email from Mr Kaye, whose response is read here by an actor.
2: At no stage in my career have I ordered a statement to be altered by deleting material aspects of it. I do not agree with Mr McMinn's recollection that I, as the Crown Prosecutor, decided that Witness A's opinion that the man was a Māori should not be included in the brief of evidence. Clearly, I have no material to rely on either way, but that is not something that I would have done. Mr K finished by saying he's not suggesting
0: police misled anyone. And I have to say that both he and all of the police officers involved have strongly rejected any suggestion of impropriety in the investigation and prosecution of Alan Hall. It was another twist in what had already been, for me, an investigation with unexpected developments. And I was about to stumble across another. A claim that perhaps it was Alan Hall, all along, who had been misleading people. A statement from years after the trial, from a police officer who said, Alan had admitted murdering Arthur Easton. Coming up in the final episode of Grove Road.
2: That's the only sort of plausible link from those items leaving that room to turning up on being left at the Easton's property. So there was a comment made by Hall during the meeting that i
0: still recalled today, where he said words similar to, quote, I killed that guy but didn't admit it.
2: Only one person I know of, has had a free reign in that room for about three hours undisturbed by himself.
0: Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian, Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia, Vinay Ranchhood and James Brown. With help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Anand Hira, Tom Turton, Carrie Johnson, Melissa Davies, radio documentary maker Jenny Anderson, Michael Mora, and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton,
5: please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.